Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an award-winning novelist, journalist, writer of games and presenter of radio programmes. She grew up in London in an Orthodox Jewish family, studied philosophy, politics and economics at Oxford University, then received an MA in creative writing at the UEA. Her first novel, Disobedience, was released in 2006 and later adapted into a feature film starring Rachel uh, Weitz and Rachel McAdams. In 2012, she co-created the story-based fitness game Zombies Run, which has been downloaded several million times and is now in its 15th series. In April 2013, she was named one of Granter's best British novelists in their famous Once a Decade list, and her 2016 novel The Power won the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. The book was recently adapted for television, debuting on Amazon earlier this year. She is also a keen player of video games. Computer games can be works of art and literature, she once said. The stories they tell and the experiences they provide are increasingly sophisticated and glorious. Welcome, Naomi Alderman. Hello. Yes, that's all me. <laughs> oh, that's a relief. Yes. <laughs> You've got the right person. It sounds like two different careers in one person, but that's, that's how I like it, really. 
Well, I had to cut that down because you've done so much, Naomi. It sounds like a pretty busy and exciting life. Is that how it feels as the one it's happening to? <laughs> Do you know what? It feels It feels very much like I have not compromised on all the things that I really love. And I've somehow managed to like make that work out, which I'm really pleased about. You know, I, I've had a sort of informational interview with a young person recently, the young person who had just done uh-huh. a master's in video games, a video games creation, and was asking me about how, you know, how I got started. And I thought, I, am I allowed to swear? I don't know if I'm allowed to yeah, swear. Sure. Yeah, sure. I thought, I thought, bloody hell, although for Americans that's not swearing. I thought, bloody hell, I've never, ever had even a single hour of tuition in video games or games making. And yet here I am. With, with that career under my belt, just through the sheer intense love of it. And uh, I think if you had said to me when I was 14, you know, doing my GCSE, it's right, so your career is going to be, you're going to be a novelist and you're going to like make radio and telly and you're going to make games, I would have gone, well, that's perfect. That's exactly Great. what I want. So. <laughs> So I'm very lucky. Yeah, well, you've been very accomplished in all of those areas. The last time we spoke, your book, The Power, had just been cited by former President Barack Obama as one of his favourite reads of the year. Oh, yeah. How was that moment? (laughs) That was ridiculous. I mean, obviously, it's lovely. But, like, I did have a lot of trouble believing that that was the case. My friend, actually, my friend Adrian Hon, who I make the Zombies Run game with, uh, said to me, oh, you have to imagine him, like, sitting on a chaise long, reading, feet up, and then occasionally like turning to the front cover, looking at your name and going, yeah, this is a good book. And then carrying on with his reading. And I just thought, oh, that's weird. And then bloody Bill Gates also named it as one of his favourite reads. Did he? Yeah, a couple of a year ago, I think. So now I get lots of messages on Instagram from gammas who <laughs> want me to put them in touch with Bill Gates. So really? there's that, yeah. But I mean, also, you know, I, that's that's wonderful. I think it, it seems like it's that book, The Power. I mean, it's doing a lot of different things. And one of the things it's doing is facilitating conversations between men and their teenage daughters or between teenage women and their fathers to talk about how the world is for women and for young women. And that that feels like a very useful and important thing to have accomplished yeah definitely you uh, i mean uh, i am going to talk to you about the power just briefly i'm sure you're f- fed up of talking about it but uh, if you'll indulge me a bit nah <laughs> you only only ever this is a this is a good advice for writers only ever write books about things that you would like to be talking about for the next 20 years <laughs> because if it goes, you're going to be talking about it for a long time. But it's life. fine because I would be like to be talking about feminism forever. So that's all fine. Well, you, you were talking a few months after you had the premiere of your TV adaptation that I mentioned in the intro. Um, you know how I know you, you have had you, you have had things adapted for the screen before, but how does it feel with this one? Which I, I guess this this novel is felt particularly personal and important to you. Yeah. How do you feel that moment of right, the premiere? <laughs> I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm going to tell the honest story of how it feels, which is which is, my mother, God bless her, collapsed with a massive stroke on the night of my UK premiere. Oh, gosh. So, and her funeral was on the day that the Power TV was released. Right. So, as somebody I know who is a, 
actually a, a descendant of Sigmund Freud said to me, isn't that just typical of life? Isn't that just typical of how sodding life works? Mm, that's, right. You know, that's, shouldn't do it on purpose. That was that wasn't that wasn't my mum's intention. No. Um, but like life just all happens all at once. And so I went to all of these events in a kind of and did all my interviews in a sort of strange daze. Mm. So this is a much more personal answer than I expect listeners are expecting. But how it is if you know that your mum is dying in hospital when you are doing a bunch of interviews about your show, in which you're not gonna say in the interviews, my mum is dying in hospital. What I found was, so I, was doing, I did a lot of those interviews in pairs. That's often how they set it up. I guess so if one of you, like, dries up, the other one can carry on. Not that I ever dry up, as you may be able to tell. <laughs> and what I found was, when I was answering a question, I was able to fully be in the moment of it. I mean, for what it's worth, if listeners haven't ever probably done a press junket for a TV show, it's like, it's a sort of canon of journalists fire directly mm. into your face. So 10 minute little brief things are one after the other for Sometimes an hour or two. four minutes and, and and for eight hours. It's like... Eight hours, oh Eight my hours. It's, it's somebody... You, you get a... You know, somebody, someone saying to you, all right, this one's four minutes and then there's somebody on a screen in front of you and they ask you a question and then you get 20 seconds break and then the next and then they go, this one's six oh minutes. Oh my gosh. And it's... And I assume you're in those little 20 seconds you're checking your phone to see you know, what's happening with your family. No, because, right, if, if I, what I did was I gave my phone. Now, this is where I'm extremely fortunate. I had an assistant, having a lovely assistant who would come with me because I just thought I would be needing to send her out get, to get me like lunch or something. But I gave my phone to my assistant and I was like, please check and see if anybody's called. And so from that perspective, that was very lucky that I had somebody there to do that. But what I found was, when I was answering the questions, I was fully present in the moment. But the moment that the person sitting next to me was answering a question, my thoughts were right back in the Royal Free Hospital mm. with my mum. Of course. So that's the level of nuts experience it was. People have sometimes looked at my work and gone, why does this work have, you know, so much in it? It's like it's like Naomi Alderman constantly wants to cram about three or four different books into every book. Like, that's what life is like. That's that's how it is. Mm. You know, there's something fundamentally untruthful about some sort of perfectly crafted novel, which is about a single subject, even though, obviously, those are very nice and calming to read, probably because of that. I try to do something that, like, expresses the thatness of human mm. life. I mean, that what you're describing there is a particularly extreme example, I guess, doing a press yeah. junket for your... The adaptation of your book on a major broadcaster and then with such a difficult situation in your home life, thats it doesn't get much more extreme than that, doesn't it? The highs and the lows concurrently. Yeah, that was... All I can say is, as, as writers, it's great because whatever happens to you, find a way to put it into some work or like it can inform some work. It's been less full-on since then. It was just a particular sort of moment of everything happening at once. And um, I have, it, it's, that's about nearly four months ago now, as we're talking. So that all feels... Still very recent. Yeah, it is very recent. I was going to say it feels much better now. But the truth is, yeah, it, it doesn't feel completely psychotically crazy. 
right now. Uh, it feels like, okay, I've had some time to, you know, take a bit of time off for grieving and um, to spend time with my family uh, and to recover a bit of equilibrium. But yeah, that was, yeah, very dramatic is what it was. Yeah, very dramatic. Well, um, I'm sorry that that happened. That's a lot, isn't it? Oh, thank you. It's, I mean... It is a lot. Sorry, that is more, you know, I know that the, the answer I'm supposed to give is, oh my God, it's so exciting. And that's also true. No, I was hoping you'd be truthful and it's exactly what you've been. And, and so often is that that's the way, isn't it? And yeah. You've got to be one way. Everyone who, who works in a profession has probably experienced situations where they have to be professional when everything inside is on fire right you know so it, it's re- it's relatable as well i think right 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 i have a very dear friend um andrea phillips who as is a transmedia creator and lives in new york and and she came with me to the new york premiere which is a, so there's london and there was new york and don't and she, she basically walked around the party with me holding my hand and whilst I was, you know, saying hi to Liz Murdoch and meeting all the famous actors and all of that. And afterwards, she came back to the hotel and literally, bless her, tucked me up in bed. Literally just, you know, I took my makeup off and my fancy frock, got into my pyjamas and got into bed in the hotel. And she literally tucked me in and turned out the lights. And she said to me, after seeing you this evening, talking to all the famous people, I am never going to think that I know what's going on in somebody's life when I see them. Because you would have thought, you know, because that's the job. The job is to sometimes go and, you know, place that in a part of your heart and your mind and say, I'm flying back to England tomorrow. So from, so tomorrow I'll be dealing with that. And tonight, this is what's happening. That's a good friend. Yeah, that, that's a good friend, she, isn't she's, it? She's a very good friend. She's a very good friend. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking about that, Naomi. Sorry, right. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna do a bit of a grinding gear yeah, change. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about oh. video games. <laughs> let's talk about video games. <laughs> so, um, so I've asked you to pick the five video games you'd like to put on your perfect fictional games console. You picked five brilliant games. Really excited to talk about these. So, why don't you tell us about your first choice? What, what is it, and why do you love it? All right, you've got the list though, so I'm gonna have to try and remember. But I believe. But the first one on my list is uh, Monkey Island, right? Monkey Island 2 in particular. memory of ever being aware of the concept of video games was at the you know puffin books have the puffin club yes and 
I belonged to the Puffin Club and the Puffin Club used to have some kind of annual festival or expo or something. We, anyway, like a live thing you could go to. And I remember my mother took me to this when I was, I don't know, must have been eight or something like that. And in amongst the books were people typing into a computer where there was a story that you could talk to. And I think because the concept of video games arrived in my life as this comes from the world of books. So what I really love is a good story. And Monkey Island 2 has a really good story. I mean, there's lots of things to talk about. The humour is fantastic. It just, you know, it's the right level of humour for the age that I was, but it's still yeah. funny years later. So just to, so just describe the game to us. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a <laughs> point, it's a point and click adventure game. As yeah, it's a point and click adventure game. Uh, you play Guy Rush Threepwood, who is a wannabe pirate who is doing various tasks to become a pirate and then is trying to get his girlfriend back, uh, who has been stolen by the dread pirate, the Chuck. Well, like, glide over the getting the girlfriend back mechanic, which obviously... <laughs> but then if I if I were doing that about all games... Uh, yeah, this was the 90s. There were damsels right. literally everywhere. Right, right, right. Damsels, constant castles, constant going from one castle to another in search of damsels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the puzzles are ridiculously difficult, such that me and my friend at school played it on her... I think she had a Pentium at home at the time, top of the range. And she had it, and I used to go round to her house at the weekends, and we would try and get a little bit further with some of these puzzles. So you have to pick up items in one location and then take them to somewhere else and try to figure out how to use them. And it's not obvious. Yeah, arcane, isn't it? Yeah. Right, right. So it's not like, oh, look, there's a door in Zelda that is locked and I need to go and find a key. It's not that. It's... I need to find some way to get into the circus tent. There's a cable leading to it. And somewhere over there, there's a rubber chicken. And... (laughs) (laughs) Right. And the rubber chicken has a pulley in it. And if I take the rubber chicken over here and I put it on the cable, then I can use that to somehow abseil down into the circus tent where there will now be a new set of puzzles. But of course, as a writer, as a a little, little baby writer... My favourite part is that there's a fighting mechanic, but you don't have to use any twitch skills. And I should say, by the way, I am dyspraxic. I am terrible at the click point, you know, press the button, do the... I can never do the combos. I can just about learn how to, like, maybe dodge. But the thing where you've got to do, like, press this, you know, A, B, one, the... I cannot, it's just literally impossible for me to learn how to do that. So the fighting mechanic in duels in Monkey Island is insults. So you have to find the right comeback to the insult, of which most famous is you fight like a dairy farmer. How, what a coincidence, you fight like a cow. And and (laughs) they're at the, oh God, it's so clever. The writing yeah, is so clever. You have to learn 
the insults and the comebacks by fighting again and again and again. And eventually you've got a bank full of insults and comebacks so that you can beat. But then the boss fight, all the insults are different. And you've got to find the comeback that you already know that is going to correctly answer the um, insult that you have just given. I mean, it's really, really good writing. It reminds me of, there's a Jonathan Coe novel. I think it's The House of Sleep, which has got one of the most sustained, brilliant comic passages I have ever read in anything, where uh, there's an editor who has narcolepsy and he has made a mistake with the, because he's fallen asleep, I think, he's, made, he's made, made a mistake with the lining up footnotes, the numbers and the footnotes. So that each footnote would make perfect sense with the number before, but with the number that it's actually that joined funny. to, it's incredibly rude towards the author, towards right, anybody. Right. I mean, just that sustained genius of that. Is, mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly the same joke format. As, yes, as yeah, the Monkey yeah. Island joke format. There's a two Ronnie sketch, isn't there, with the mas- in Mastermind? Do you know that, where he's answering oh, yes! the question from the one he's before? He's answering the question which before. Which is the same he's... mechanic, isn't it? <laughs> right, right. And it's so good because just the level of cleverness to make it work twice is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, I don't know, it, it's like Brilliant. that musical contrapunto where you get something working in harmony with itself. It's just... Yeah, I can I can get incredibly pretentious about this. No, I love it. Brilliant. Okay, Monkey Island 2, a fine choice, Naomi. And so, it's still available. So me- if you haven't played it, go and play it. Yes. I haven't spoiled the end for you. I have spoiled the rubber chicken, but that's one of the lesser puzzles in there. And also, <laughs> can I just say, it really benefits from not looking it up and just let, letting your brain work on it. Do a bit of work on it, get stuck, go and do other things for a couple of weeks and then come back to it. Also, this is the rhythm of a good novel. You know, you read a bit, you put it down, you come back. Just, yeah, doesn't have to take over your whole life. Let your subconscious do some tinkering on the yeah. problems. So, so um, I said in the intro, Nevi, you grew up in you grew up in London and you were, you went to an Orthodox Jewish school. Um, yeah, what, what was that like? <laughs> I went to an Orthodox Jewish primary school. And, uh, primary school, yeah secular, quite posh secondary school. Um, so what was that like? That was a bit of a culture shock going from the one to the other. It's certainly, certainly in my Orthodox Jewish school, I had the, listen, in some ways I got a great education. We had half the lessons a day in Hebrew, which was like, so I grew up bilingual, which is great. And wow. I can read the Bible in the original Hebrew, which is like, as a writer, that's a really good place to start. <laughs> and... I'm not an Orthodox Jew anymore, but I continue to have a lot of respect for that way of life. I think it's a very sincere way of life with brilliant values about families and about um, community support. And also they're very sexist. Uh, I read a quote from you where you said that every morning the boys said, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. Yeah, that's true. true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So every morning the boys say the bracha, the blessing, Shalah Sani Isha which means, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. And the girls say, which means, thank you for making me according to your will. Thank you for giving me the consolation prize. Yeah, thank you for this shit, I guess. Um, 
Now, look, when I was when I was a child, I had a sort of slightly feeling of like, is there something dodgy about this? But it's amazing how as a child you just accept whatever is going on. Right. Mm. To me, the most one of the most tricky things was when I was 11 and the boys started in like final year of primary school, the boys started to have lessons in Talmud and the girls did not. Right. So there was a literally kind of, there was a type of knowledge that I was not allowed to access, which drove me bananas. Mm, Right. Even more so when I was, by the time I was at secondary school, so I went to what was probably then one of the most feminist, secondary schools in the country, which was an interesting choice on the part of my parents, who I think could see that I wasn't necessarily very well suited to the life of an Orthodox Jewish woman. Now, I must say, I have friends who have remained within the Orthodox Jewish community. You know, I have a friend who's got a PhD in military history, like, and and is still an Orthodox Jewish woman. It's not that it doesn't happen, it's a very education-oriented world, but I am someone who finds it very difficult even to make myself do my edits on my book. I would ideally like to just write it and never have to think about it again. <laughs> so a very, very detail-oriented culture in which you have to pay extremely close attention to what pans have been used for milk and meat, and it's, it's not, it's not going to fit basically. <laughs> it's it's not that I hate it, it just wasn't for me. Right, I see, yeah. And you, you, your parents were both intellectuals and I read that you got taken to the library several several days oh, yeah. a week when you were tiny as well, all of that. So I guess that was all, you know, it was a very knowledge-based right. uh, household, I imagine. Right, I grew up in a very intellectually open house and there was no such thing as a book I couldn't read. I mean, even if I wanted to watch like a grown-up telly programme, uh, my mum always had the, I think, very sensible thought, which is you can watch whatever you like, but if it's for grown-ups, then we're going to watch mm-hmm. it together. It's a good policy. Yeah, it's a really good, sensible policy. And, you know, then brings parents and children closer <laughs> through discussion. So, yeah, we had a video recorder, Betamax, and my mum used to record programmes that I was interested in, and then we could watch it together and then pause it, <laughs> you know, if there was anything that needs to be discussed. So... It's not that that way of living an orthodox life is completely gone. I think it's, I think it's less common than it used to be. Mm. And like all religious communities, there's been a polarization between the secular and the religious. What I perceive as something profoundly useful that I can do in the world is to be a kind of translator between these two vocabularies and two worlds. Which I, you know, I grew up very religious and I'm not religious anymore, but I don't hate them, which I think is unusual. And right, yes. being able to say, to, to sort of open one eye and see the world one way and open the other eye and see the world the other way. I, I think I think it's helpful creatively and just, just in terms of bridge building, really, which we do need some of in the world these yeah, days. Yeah, we do. I think it probably, it helps that you're a, you're a novelist, you're a writer, which is you know, every good writer is is um, an empathetic person. I think and can understand, you know, you understand where people are coming from and their stories and how that affects who they are and how they present in the world. I so. think that's true. I think part of the part of the job is mostly not writing people off, 
I'm, pre- I'm prepared to write Hitler off. But in general, I'm interested, even in people that I really disagree with, I'm, I'm interested to know the human story that got them there. Right, Naomi, let's come to your, your second game, which is all about um, trying to divine a story from not many clues. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell us about this game? Yeah, okay. So, Little Mist, right? Yes. Yes. You see, I haven't got the list in front of me, so I'm having to try to remember. Um, but it's all right. If I forget, you will prompt me. played Mist. That must have been the first year that I started work. And I, again, I have these wonderful memories of trying to puzzle it out in the evenings. And then being in work in my first job, I was an assistant at a publishing house. Just all day, it was in the back of my mind thinking about it. First of all, I'll say that the puzzles are beautiful. Mm. They are. It's sort of set on this mystical. I know it's very. It's a wordless yeah. game, isn't it? Basically, it's a wordless game. It's almost wordless, and the words that there are are not good. So we'll pass over. But um, but the the structure of the puzzles is extraordinary, and the experience of being in the place is also incredibly enjoyable. Mm. So you turn up on this island. You seem to have like fallen through a wrench in the hole in reality. It's happened to us all constantly falling through holes in reality uh you're on an island and you need to figure out stuff there's things to look at at the observatory you can go and have a look at the observatory you can see that you can line up different constellations there are books in the library that you can look at that also have constellations listed in them you just spend a lot of time because this is before the internet, really. Yeah. You spend, you know, you, I think I think it's sort of roughly contemporaneous with people hand email and if you went and Googled, no, there was no Google. If you went and looked on Alta Vista. Ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves. It was before Dogpile. I remember looking up knitting and there was a knitting page. <laughs> <laughs> You found the knitting page I on the internet. I found the knitting page on the internet. There were there were quite a lot of pages of photos of Mulder and Scully. But you couldn't find anything out about Mist, the game, M-Y-S-T, on the internet. So you're wandering around this island. There's no way to find out what's going on. Maybe you could go and buy a PC gaming magazine, which might have some clues in it. Mm. I remember we did that for Monkey Island. Uh, but otherwise, it's just you. Actually, me and my brother played it together. So, again, a very kind of beautiful communal experience. Oh, lovely. And yeah. I would be at work thinking up things I was going to try that evening. Mm-hmm. Going, oh, maybe if I try this. A friend had had described this game to me, described the, the constellations and the books. You could actually look inside the books. This was a completely new thing. And so I knew a little bit about how that puzzle worked, and that got me started. There's a part where you're walking through a a sort of water land and you have to work out how to get the water to flow down particular channels. The soundtrack of it is 
very chill. It's music, it's birdsong, it's flowing water. It's just a really incredibly pleasant place to spend your time. So much of what they did that was brilliant was was to do with audio. There's a wonderful puzzle where you have to, this is a spoiler, sorry. You have to figure out that particular sounds are associated with this is the direction you should go. And to start out with, you're just like, what are those that? Oh, weird sounds? Um, how are we? And then that, I remember my brother saying to me that he tried this and he thought that was what it was. And I'm like, oh, amazing. And then we kind of, you know, wrote it down and tried to figure it out. And yeah, it was, it was just a genuinely, it's like a holiday going and walking around mist. It's also something that has been intensely interesting for me in my writing is how to offer people access to a world that they would like to be in. Mm, right. And give them the chance to explore it. I think you see that turning up in my novels and turning up in my games, that feeling of a game can be a magic door into a world that you wouldn't otherwise be able to go to. And we do need that. We should. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So now you you go off to Oxford and you study PPE, which is of course a highly respected course, but also perhaps a bit notorious as being the course for prospective uh, MPs and leaders of our country. I mean, was was that your plan? I mean, no, I wasn't. What I okay, this is this is what it was. I everywhere else I applied for university, I applied for English and philosophy, which I think anybody who reads my stuff will go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but you couldn't do that at Oxford. And uh, my dad was an academic who had been to Oxford and would lo- and wanted me to apply for Oxford. And oh, you felt the pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I was at a very academic school and the, do you know what? I, I can't say that I regret going to Oxford, although I had a difficult time in some ways i did experience proper old-fashioned anti-semitic bullying so that was nice really sure i don't man like yeah they didn't they didn't do english philosophy at oxford so i just went all right what should i do uh this course which has got philosophy and a couple of other things that because i wanted to do something i hadn't done before which is to be honest always my attitude in the buffet of life yeah if offered if you have to make a choice pick the thing you never did before fair enough uh, which has sometimes led me astray, but has also led me down some interesting roads. So 
I wouldn't say I was a natural economist. I'm, I'm an exact contemporary of Liz Truss doing uh-huh, okay. I was going to ask if there were any uh, inglorious people on your course at that time. <laughs> I I didn't know them. You know, I didn't I didn't move in those circles. I was an Orthodox Jew. I went to the Jewish Society. I I knew that there were such things as people making connections, but I never did that. You know, it's it's sort of, it looks like Hogwarts, although this was before Harry Potter was published. So. Uh, but it's very beautiful um, and very romantic. And I found it quite weird how some of the tutors didn't seem to really care whether we understood the material or not. But I think a lot of academics go and work at Oxford and Cambridge, not in order to see students, but, you know, for the research opportunities. So the teaching is kind of the bit that they have to do. And the bit they get out of the way. Yeah, yeah, yes. so- but yes, just because I'm an exact contemporary of Liz Trust doing PPE, don't think from that that I know nothing about economics. <laughs> well, you you do you graduate and then you wind up in um, in New York and you're there on September the 11th, I believe. I am. Um, and and this, you know, as it did for many people, this is a bit of a turning point for you. Um, just tell us what, what happened and what, what decision did that lead you to make? You know, I left university with a degree. I wanted to be a novelist, but there wasn't a, like, you couldn't go and apply for that job. So what people said to me was, oh, you know, try working in a law firm. So I was working in a law firm. It was also not a good fit. It was a funny time in my life, my mid-20s. I felt like I was living somebody else's dream life, living in Manhattan, uh, being an extremely religious Orthodox Jew. And I was there on 9-11. I was in the office. I watched the towers falling from my office window. It's funny, like, the towers falling was really... Until that moment, I've just left an empty gap there where I don't know what the word is. It felt like something was over at the moment that the towers fell. Everybody knew someone who had lost somebody. So I remember in the months afterwards, you know, going with a friend to a concert and my friend saying, oh, yeah, you know, I bought this ticket for my friend who died in the towers. And there was just, there was a lot of that going on. There's also something about, I think, one wants to make, meaning out of tragedy do you see this with with people who have have lost somebody in very tragic circumstances that you want to make that mean more than just this terrible thing happened so to set up a charity to make sure it doesn't happen again you know to to and i think a lot of people in manhattan decided to change their lives after that day there was a lot of that going on People decided to get married or decided to break up or decided to have a baby or decided to move out of the city or, you know, decided to reconnect with a strange family or to finally cut off their horrible father. And, mm. you know, all of those things were happening. It seemed to me in the months that followed, I thought very much that there were probably people in those towers thinking the thing that I was thinking, which was, just do this job for another few years and then I'll go and write that novel that I've always meant to write. And then that's that. Yeah. So get on with your life. Get on with what you want to be doing. Now, also at that time, Manhattan was a really 
horrible place to live. Um, the, ta- the, the fire smoldered under the towers for months, and every time the wind blew from south to north across the island, the sky was yellow and you could smell it, like a smell like burning plastic. <clears throat> Everywhere, every piece of street furniture, lampposts and bus shelters covered in flyers for the missing. Have you seen this person? Have you seen that? I remember flyers about is somebody missing and they had a pet because the ASPCA will go to their apartment and they'd look after the pet. So just, and in that time, having said that I am uh, very dyspraxic and I don't really play Twitch games, I became, for the only time in my life, completely addicted to Diablo 2. I used to walk home through Manhattan. I lived on 99th Street and I worked on 53rd Street. So I used to walk the 45 blocks home, pass all of these flyers and all, and, and then I would get back into the my apartment. You know, I, I was living in a shared apartment, so I, in my bedroom, turn on the air conditioning. I put on videos of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I would play Diablo 2, which a friend in the office had suggested for me because I said I'd love, I liked video games. And I mean, I don't think we need Dr. Freud to tell us about playing constantly a game in which you very satisfyingly kill demons and monsters again and again and again and again and again in order to try to know what I was up to there. It's like popping bubble wrap, isn't it, sort of thing, that game. <laughs> <laughs> I find it... I, I'm very good at that game. <laughs> I found that I could not play it in increments smaller than four hours. Cool. Yeah. And I was playing it on a laptop with a trackpad. I, did, I didn't have any of the equipment. So that's thanks to that RSI in rheumatism in my hands. I re- really remember that having... Diablo 2, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, air conditioning, four hours. I just couldn't think about anything else. And it was like a holiday for my brain. It, when I would finish for the evening and go to sleep, all there would be in my head was Diablo 2. So what can we say about Diablo 2? It's, it, it's good fun. Therapeutic. <laughs> yeah, I can't necessarily <laughs> recommend it. It's one, it's, that is that game that I ended up giving away the CD-ROM of, or whatever it was, DVD of. And then buying it again twice. Wow. <laughs> it's a little, it's, it's a sort of mythical, if, I guess, I guess if somebody imagines a computer game who's never played a computer game, they're either imagining something like Diablo 2 or they're imagining Grand Theft Auto. 
I mean, God, they make really satisfying noises when you kill them, those monsters. <laughs> you don't get a choice of characters. You're a warrior or you're a necromancer. I, I used to play the necromancer all the time. Uh-huh. Which, uh, living in a city full of the shards of dead people, breathing in the, the stench of literal massacre, const- you know, playing a game where I'm ridding the world of evil and making the dead rise can we see what's going on there <laughs> yeah see we can we can all see what's going on you're given a quest you've got to go and empty out this dungeon cave you can get very very good at it there's all sorts of like rare drops of artifacts and the helm of this and the staff yeah. of that and if you implant the three gems into the staff of that, then you have a 15% chance of this happening. Yeah, it's really a game about maths, isn't it? It's sort of it like is a game if about the maths. Pilgrim's Progress was played in a spreadsheet. It's yeah, sort right. Of... <laughs> right, right. It's a game about ridding the world of evil and maths. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, it's a wonderful game, yeah. It's, it's, do you know what? It's wonderful. Like, a certain Diablo was released a couple of years ago. Uh, what one was that? Diablo? Yeah. Well, Diablo 4 just came out like a month ago. So. But before that, there was Diablo 3, which I thought, having spent more than a decade clean... Don't touch it. I thought, let me get... Yeah, well, no, I put it on my Switch. And the problem is, I played that, so I'm really good at it, and it's no challenge whatsoever. All the other types of game of that kind, if they've got different controls, they can't do it. Ooh. But that one, I was just like, oh, God, this is easy and boring. <laughs> Okay, bit of a flex, Naomi. But I have no interest in like upping the difficulty level and, you know, making it compelling for myself again. But, you know, in the end, by the time I was doing my master's at UEA in creative writing, that was the point at which I gave away the, and I was living on like no money. So when Uh I gave it away, I could not afford to give it back. And that was the end of that. Okay, right. We better. Oh gosh, time is marching on, Amy. I've got so much. Oh, I'm I want sorry. To talk I am to a bit about. of a talker. No, no, it's great. Um, but there's just lots I want to ask you. So, okay, so you do you after after September the 11th, you move back to the UK and you you become a novelist. And your first novel goes on to become a major motion picture film, which doesn't often happen, but it does. It it comes through for you. And then at the same time, you're sort of working in making these games that are you know, set in the real world in some way, you work on a couple of those and then you come to work on Zombies Run. Tell us about, tell us about this because it's really a phenomenon, isn't it? Um, right. Yeah. So I had worked on, as you say, a couple of alternate reality games, which are really good fun. And I got into them in a very strange way, which boils down to, I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody and they were looking for a writer and I'd just finished my master's and I felt like a bolt of lightning had hit the top of my head and I thought, right, I must do that. And I went to do that. So I, I've essentially my games career and my novel career have always been in parallel. Yeah, so Adrian Hahn, who is the CEO of the company Sixer Starts, I knew him from working on Perplexity, which we'd made together. We'd really enjoyed working together. One day we met up in 2010, sort of, autumn 2010 and and he we were talking about different things that he wants to make wanted to make and he's a very keen runner and he said i want to do something that makes running more fun and i said well how about something you're being chased by zombies because i had recently joined a like online forum for people who are brand new to running and there was a sort of little catchphrase we would say to this group, oh, yeah, 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 all we need to do is just be a little bit faster than the zombies no way and so <laughs> there you go <laughs> there we go so <laughs> We talked about this. As a writer, I could see how I could 
make it work. You, so, so the concept of Sunbeach Run is it's a smartphone fitness game. You take your phone out with your headphones, you go out for a run or for a walk. We do not discriminate. And we do stories from the zombie apocalypse in your headphones to encourage you to go a bit further and faster and to make the whole business of getting some exercise a bit less boring. Yeah, It's very exciting because you'll be running along and suddenly they'll be like, oh, there's, you know, a horde of zombies coming around the corner, you know, run fast for 30 seconds or whatever it is, so that sort of thing, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So we tried to make it, and it, you know, it's it's succeeded. We're still in the health and fitness top 10 on top 20 and, you know, making that thing since 2011. Yeah, right. That's very unusual for most most apps have a, I think it's a half-life of three months, which is to say they make half the money they're ever going to make in the first three months. Right. And we have, we've had 10 million players. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And we have a very That's- loyal base of people for whom we are the solution to getting some exercise. So we 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 launched on Kickstarter in 2011. We were there. At that point, I think we were the highest funded video games project ever on Kickstarter. It's It's been very wonderful to work on a Kickstarter project because our fans, our users are the people who made it possible for us to make the game. And they have also you know, really wanted it to exist in the world. And I think it's so helpful compared to the very top-down nature of novels where you sit in a room, try to come up with some timeless thoughts, you know, somebody publishes them and then there's just like, you know, a lot of readers writers don't feel this way, but there is a slight tendency, I think, to go, oh, scummy readers, you know, whatever, like, uh, readers who don't really understand my genius. <laughs> uh, not all writers think that way. <laughs> Name them. Name and shame. Yeah. <laughs> the setup is quite a hierarchical setup. It's yeah. quite a, you sit there and take what I'm giving you. And and so the Zombies Run experience, which has been, like, really collaborative with the players, with mm. the fans since the start, has been, I mean, very wonderful kind of weirdly healing has left me with such a you know i have such a respect for our players and so yeah so we re- we release seasons like a tv show we've <clears throat> during the pandemic we basically within about I, th- I think it was when i heard that when i had all that up on italy went into lockdown when that in other countries around the world that that we hadn't done that yet we didn't know what it would be like and, you, and you're like, oh, my God, you've got to stay in your house. At that point, I sent a message to Adrian and we said, right, let's let's do something for our people. Mm-hmm. And so we did a lot of at-home workouts, which, you know, I just... Barricade your windows. Yeah, right, exactly. Sort of yeah. Do you know what we did exactly that sort of thing? Did you? Like, like squats <laughs> to, like, lift up your um, door to, to put it over the window and, you know, here, practice with some tin cans lifting them onto a high shelf to create your own zombie pantry. So <laughs> it really did feel like that's what we've been training for all these years yeah. was to make this. So um, That is brilliant. I really care about the people who play that game. Mm. And I've always approached it with a feeling of I would like to give them a present. You know, I want them to get everything they want out of it. And, you know, I think I think the loyalty... It's rewarded with loyalty, mm. basically. Oh, wonderful. 
Right, let's we better come to your fourth game, Naomi, which uh, which is about getting out for a, for a walk. I would say this one. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about uh, about this game? All right. So yes, journey. It's a wordless game. It's incredibly beautiful. Again, a bit like Mist in this way, you're dropped into a situation you have to kind of try to work out what's going on, which apparently is something that I like. You are a character dressed in pilgrim robes. You go through a variety of interesting, beautiful, wonderfully realised environments. The game design is exquisite. Certainly on the first playthrough, I had no idea how much they were leading and guiding me to what I next needed to do, and it felt incredibly open world. One of the really marvellous things about it is that you can play online with a stranger, but there is no way to insult or abuse each other. Yeah, you can't, you can't do voice chat, can you? Am I right in thinking that? You can't yeah. do voice chat. There is no way to, all you can do is either help each other or ignore each other. And once you've played that game, you go, oh, all of these games that have abuse problems, that's a design choice. They have decided to allow that and decided not to prevent it and decided in some cases to actively encourage it um, or at least not to discourage it. And you play Journey, all you have is incredibly beautiful experiences with strangers where there's, this, there's like a dune landscape there's an underwater landscape there are points when you can be attacked by a kind of monster but there's no way to really lose you, you just continue through the game and you are it's never really specified but you are a pilgrim seeking to put something right that went wrong but a long time ago and and you can look and sort of try to interpret their uh, glyphs and murals and, and sort of things that give you a suggestion of what's happening. I mean, it's a very artsy game. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. Very, it's, it's like a dance piece, really. My mum was a great fan of ballet, <laughs> which and took me to it a lot, which I never really became a lover of ballet. But I think when I think about Journey, that's what it reminds me of. There's so much in just a gesture or a, a, a sort of way that somebody is sitting mm. that indicates to you what is going on. And it's also somewhat elusive. There are a lot of different ways to interpret what's happening. Right at the end of the game, if you are playing online with a stranger, you get the stranger's details if you want to contact them. Mm. And you don't have to. Yes, but what it essentially produces is again and again and again, complete strangers from different parts of the world sending each other a message saying, thank you so much for your help which really made me go, oh, yeah, 
Like, it's very possible to make choices that mean that you can only have a nice experience with a stranger. Mm. So the industry could maybe be a bit responsible about that. And actually, it's interesting. Oh, that was roughly the also the sort of time that we were coming up with Zombies Run. And we have a really nice community on Zombies Run, and that's also about design choices. Yes, right. Yes. And about the type of story that you choose to tell and the way that you engage with your players and the kinds of engagement that you tolerate between your players. Yeah, people who don't think about that are in there, particularly they're making online games, very irresponsible. I think the success of both Journey and Zombies Run shows that you know, if you do make those choices, it doesn't necessarily limit your audience, right. you know, which I guess could be the worry for some of the really big companies or whatever. But yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> as we can tell from social media, there's always going to be a good dollar in making people angry and afraid. <laughs> but is that fundamentally the contribution you would like your life to have made to the world? Well, not me. No, <laughs> no not me either. No, not you. Uh, no, certainly not you. But Just for the record. <laughs> yeah, I, you know... I don't know. I guess like come from where I come from and you can take the girl out of Orthodox Judaism, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do believe in doing some stuff that is led by values. Yes, indeed. Right. I would just like, I want to ask you a little bit about um, your novel writing, Naomi. So you... Um, and that. Well, yeah, I just want to, I'm going to role play as the um, Paris Review for a minute because they always do these lovely like interviews with writers about their, uh, what is, so what's your working setup? How do you, how do you like structure your day when you've got so much to do when you're working on a novel? Right. It sort of depends what I've got on. Uh, obviously during the pandemic it was very different. For a, for a long time I used to do novels in the morning, games in the afternoon. Oh, nice. Which yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I find that in the mornings I don't really want to talk to people. And so that's quite a good time to sit at my desk. I don't necessarily believe in doing enormous amounts every day, heroic feats. When I'm working on a novel, I would do 800 words a day. And that seems to get me there. That's a good number. Yeah, it's a good, like, loping along pace. Yeah. It's, you know, 800 words a day, that's 8,000 words in 10 days, 8,000 words in three months. Of course, as we all know... And so we all know that's not how it works, writing a novel. And there's actually many more like backtracks and, oh, crap, I'm going to have to delete those 50,000 words and start again. <laughs> when I wrote The Power, I had a draft, first draft of 200,000 words, and I threw it all out. Oh, gosh. Wow. It's like a horror story for novelists. But um, How many times did you rewrite that novel? That was That was the big rewrite, but... I don't know, probably probably 15 drafts until it was there. Right, cool. Worth doing, though, As they say, to get right, it right, isn't it? Yeah, right, correct. And with that, I I had, the first draft to do it had a single main character, and I realised that in order to try and get this character all the places I wanted her to go, I'd sort of bent her in too many directions, and she just didn't make sense anymore. And so um, I suppose you're up into four different people that works a lot better (laughs) and also left me room to have a male character in there which was also very important to me but yeah 800 words a day is a pace that, and and every day not just weekdays every day um oh you do seven days a week yeah seven days a week oh that's impressive (laughs) like if i've got if i've got a migraine or i'm sick or i have a particularly tough day then I'm allowed to just do 100 words, but mm. I'm never allowed to do that two days in a row. 
So uh, yeah, a hundred words. You can any you can do that on the toilet. Literally, it's and eight hundred words is a proper amount. And what I find is it's like almost as if there's a like a sort of bowl inside my head that some, that water is dripping into. And if I pour out that eight hundred words every day, then there's another a new eight hundred the next day. Right. Uh, and if I don't pour it out, then just all sorts of things have gone wrong. It's leaked everywhere, or it's dried up, and it takes me, you know a week of pumping the rusty hand pump to get it going again. Yeah. What a useful image. That's great. And then how as well do you, um, I imagine you're, you you might be at this stage at the moment where you're deciding what your next project is be, going to be. At what point do you think, oh, yes, that's the novel that I'm going to do? Because uh, a book is a big commitment, right? It's uh, That's going to be your life for a while. Yeah. And uh, I guess this... when you make that choice, it, Yeah, this was a really uh, interesting question. Yeah. It's a really interesting question, and, and I'm just about to publish a novel in November called The Future, so you are right. I'm at that point right now of picking the next one. I think, so actually, I sat down with a couple of writer friends uh, a few weeks ago, and I read them my whole list of ideas, all the ideas that have turned up during the writing of this book, which is literally about 50 ideas. And they were very interested by that. And I like left one until right at the end. And when I read that one to them, they were like, yeah, but that's the one, isn't it? <laughs> that's, you know, all the, the, these other ideas, there's some of them are interesting, some of them are bad, some of them, you know, but that's hmm. the one. Did you leave that to the end because you knew secretly? Probably, probably secretly. Um, yeah, I can tell you what it is, if you like. Well, why don't I tell you what the novel that's coming out in November is? Yeah, and you I should can do tell that. you what the new, yeah. Yeah, so the novel that's coming out in November is a novel about technology, having worked in technology for about 20 years now. Uh, It's about a group of technology billionaires who have their secret bunker and the bunkers that they're going to after the apocalypse in their their view. And the novel opens with them receiving the signal to say, you know, on their smart devices to say, this is it, the world's ending. Get in the bunker. Get in the plane. Go to your bunker. And the rest of the book is about how they got there and what happens then. Brilliant. Good setup. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what's it called? Uh, It's called The Future. Right, yeah. And there's a lot of twists and turns. And then, you know, you flash back a few months and then there's a woman being chased through a mall in Singapore by an assassin. And just as she thinks she is cornered and about to get killed a thing pops up on her phone and says, you look like you need some help. And it tells her how to kill the assassin and get away. And she doesn't know how it got on her phone. Very intriguing. <laughs> yes, those two plots collide. Nice. There we go. That's, um... Well, I look, forward to, uh, I look forward to Barack Obama recommending that to me in a few months. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll only read it right if Barack phones you up personally. Exactly. And... <laughs> Which he often does. No, I don't mean that. You guys are tight. Yeah. Right. We better come to your fifth and your final game, Naomi. So, um, oh, yes. Yeah. Tell oh, us. Oh, this is a lovely game. Yeah. What is it and why do you love it? Yeah. So, this is a game called Scissors and Sleeper.
which is one of the new crop of wonderful indie art house games. Uh, it's it's made by I think either a one or two person band in in London. In the, the game, the, the mechanic is dice. You roll dice. That determines what actions you can do that turn. So you are a sleeper in this game, which is a person who is half or partly mechanoid and your mech implants are patented to the company that made you who are going to you you have escaped but they're going to be able to track you via your implants and come and get you if you don't figure out a way to turn that off before their bounty hunter gets there it's a, it's a great premise isn't it it's great it's that something to me. It's great. <laughs> and you start with a little clock ticking down, like this number of turns before the bounty hunter gets here. Using this little dice mechanic, so you roll a number of dice. The number of dice that you have is determined by how much energy you had at the start of that day. The amount of energy is determined by did you manage to eat? Did you manage to sleep? Did you manage to get your implants charged up again? So you have to try to befriend people on this floating space station that you've ended up on you've been sort of pulled in with debris uh and are you going to be able to befriend enough people get them to trust you it's great again the thing that is so wonderful is the world building actually it's really interesting talking about games that i love and going again and again and again it's the world fundamentally it's an incredibly optimistic game about the possibilities of hope of working together as a community finding people who will help you offering something and being cared for in return offering your labor and sometimes being cheated but often being looked after there's a really fantastic subplot where you have to go and do childcare for someone who is going out working as a shipbreaker. I've never seen that before in a game. That childcare, which if you've ever done childcare, you know that it is both physically and mentally exhausting, much more so than anything that you have previously done. You know, un unless your job was literally going down the pits, which in this country it was not, um, <laughs> then you've never done anything as physically demanding for your day job as looking after a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So, <laughs> and when you see that compared to other jobs that your characters can take on, this childcare job is one of the most physically depleting. You go, oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you recognised it. The, the, get, yes. To, I mean, there's some really beautiful, hopeful places the game comes to about the ways in which systems will self-repair if we leave wild things to grow if we allow people to work together if we allow people to build up trust in one another they will help one another you know i'm in my 40s i think people of my generation can be a bit jaded and hopeless mm -hmm. and this feels like a game that has come from the generation younger than me who are looking for some real radical solutions to the state the world is in.
and I find it just massively hopeful and inspiring. Wonderful, right? Well, I think I think you sold a few copies of Citizen Sleeper there, so that's good. Good. <laughs> Nobody will regret it. It's great. Right. Let's go through your concerts. So we've got here um, Secret of Monkey Island Two, uh, Mist, Diablo Two, Journey, and Citizen Sleeper. Wonderful. Oh, I'm going to have a nice time, yeah. aren't I? Something for every mood. Yeah, exactly. When I experience some rage, I've got I've got Diablo Two there. Yes, yeah. and. And if I feel like I'm on an island and, you know, I want a bit more sand, then I've got I've got Journey. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> oh, I'll have a lovely time with that. Yeah, also, you will. I probably won't remember how half the puzzles go. So I'll I'll be able to like resolve them. Be like playing it afresh. Yeah. yeah. So we need a we need a name for your for your console, Naomi. So um something to market it to the world. Have you got any ideas for what we could call it? Oh that is an interesting question. Um I'm going to say Doors to Fantastic Worlds. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is the name. That is the name. Wonderful. Yeah, there are none of those. As, as you'll notice, I don't have a Call of Duty in there. <laughs> but the, <laughs> I mean, other games that I considered for this include, like, the Obradin and yep. Kentucky Route Zero. Yep. And they would also have been Doors to Fantastic World. Yeah, they so apparently fit. that's what I like. With the, li- yeah. the It's a literary name for a console. So, yeah, I think it works very yeah. well. Nice. Um, right, great. Well, Naomi, we're going to pop to the uh, Patreon now to, uh, to do some questions from users. But just uh, Ooh, lastly, yes. I would like to say thanks so much for coming on this and for sharing all of your your stories it's been such a great time thank you so much oh well thank you i've had a really brilliant time these are not questions i ever get asked about video (laughs) games so may this be the way of the future that we can talk about the wonderful emotional artistic qualities of video games indeed Naomi Alderman there, everyone. Wasn't that a great conversation? Fantastic. Naomi's new book, which we discussed there a bit, The Future, is out today. If you are listening to this uh, on the public feed, so that's on Tuesday, the 7th of November 2023, The Future is out in shops today. You can go and buy it in your local bookshop in your waterstones wherever it is uh, on amazon if you have to <laughs> and uh, yeah it's published by harper collins as naomi explained there it is um a book all about the end of the world and the world's richest people on the planet who have come up with a little plan for how they're going to survive the apocalypse and it's what happens next a great premise. There was a wonderful long New York piece actually a few years ago all about very wealthy people and the plans they have, the bunkers that they've got uh, made made up, ready to escape to in the event of uh, the end of the world. And so, yeah, you should go and read that if you want the non-fiction telling of that story. And uh, of course, you should also go and buy Naomi's book. Uh, I loved talking to Naomi about her passion for games I think, in fact, you can't really understand Naomi's work as a as a novelist without also understanding her passion for games. 
as she said in that interview, those two things, her her novel writing, her game playing and her game designing have all gone hand in hand throughout her career. You can't really understand one without the other. And so, yeah, it was great to have her talk about that whole aspect of her life, which, as she said at the end there, she never really gets to talk about. That's not something that I suppose people who interviewers who are interviewing her about her novels often ask about and yes it seems to me to be fundamental to who she is as a creator and uh, her understanding of world building and the kinds of stories that she wants to tell all seem rooted in some of these formative game experiences monkey island 2 for example of course we had Guybrush Threepwood, the voice of Guybrush, uh, Dominic Armato on the podcast earlier this year. You should go and listen to that if you're a Monkey Island fan. <laughs> it was great to hear uh, Naomi's memories of playing that as a, as a young person. Uh, what an interesting and rich life she has had. I'm also grateful to her for just opening up, I suppose, at the beginning there about the rather difficult months she's had this year with the uh, death of her mother, and what, uh, what, and I'm trying to think of the right word here, but it was just super interesting and gracious of her to talk about what it was like to go through the experience of launching this prestige TV drama on Amazon. I think she was one of the writers on that, although, of course, the whole series, The Power, was based on her novel, The Power. To be going through the excitement of that, while at the same time contending with this sort of private family matter one of the hardest things to have to contend with the death of a parent and you know trying to put up a brave face while uh, everything inside is on fire and in question and your whole life is changing I think perhaps many of us have experienced things like that maybe it's not the death of a loved one but other things that have happened in your life and you're having to show up for work and put on a brave face so um yeah, even though I expect Naomi's experience of launching a prestige TV show is not familiar to many of us. The emotional interior of what was going on there, I think we can probably relate to lots of us. If you want to also play Naomi's game, then download Zombies Run. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's been going for a very long time, played millions and millions of times, as as she explained there. Uh, it's really fun if you're looking for a slightly different fitness app, either for walking or for running, then this is this is certainly one to look at. It's a narrative-based game, but of course is also designed to encourage you. It's sort of a bit like a couch to 5k uh, set in the world of The Walking Dead. There, can't put it much better than that. <laughs> if that sounds like it appeals, then you'll probably enjoy it. Uh, you can download that wherever you get your apps for your phone. Uh, Okay, if you would like to find out more details about the podcast, head to www.patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. You can follow what we're up to there. Lots and lots of posts you get. As I mentioned at the end there, we're doing, there's a bonus episode with some extra Naomi content. These are questions posed by the Patreon supporters who have written in and I put some of those questions to Naomi. He was gracious enough to give us some extra time answering those. That will be out later this week, that episode. Uh, if that sounds like it appeals, then yeah, head to Patreon, become a supporter. It's also just a great way to help the building of this show as we come to the end of our first year. 
I'm not sure if this would have started by the time this comes out, but it's certainly going to be imminent, is the My Perfect Console Knockout competition. So I'll be posting details of this on the Patreon and also on social media. You'll get to vote. We're going to do a knockout competition for all of my guests' consoles. Um, and you get to vote which one you think is best in each of these sort of 1v1s. And then it will knock out. And you know how a knockout competition works. <laughs> and then until it gets down to the final winner, and we'll crown the uh, the best console of the year. So yeah, look out for that if it's not always already started and get involved. Please put your votes in. That would be lovely. It's going to be for Patreons only in the latter stages. But until then, uh, yeah, get involved. Let your voice be heard. Vote for the console with your favourite games on it. And, you know, they're all brilliant. They're all singular. And uh, I'm sure we will find out which is the most popular. However, what the best seller is going to be. Right. Next week. This is an exciting guest. Um, at the time that I'm recording this little outro to Naomi's uh, episode, I haven't actually recorded it yet. So fingers crossed that that all that all goes ahead. And uh, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it'll be fine. But anyway, on the 14th of November, my guest is Brian Lee O'Malley. He is the comic book creator of Scott Pilgrim. I'm sure if you haven't read the Scott Pilgrim graphic novels, then I expect you may have seen the extremely popular movie that was based on it. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie, then maybe you've heard of the Netflix animation based on the movie, based on the graphic novel that's coming out imminently. Brian is going to be chatting to me about his five favourite game choices. I'm very excited about that. If you know Scott Pilgrim, then you know that those uh, those comics are threaded through with video game culture. And uh, I'm a big fan. Wow, I've been reading. I read those Scott Pilgrims when I was you know a lot younger, and they had a huge impact on me. So I'm 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 a little nervous to speak to Brian. I'm sure it'll go fine. I'm looking forward to sharing the episode with you next week so yeah come back then listen to brian's five choices and we're gonna have one more perfect console to add to the bile until then have a great week the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. 
Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.